0: Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough so many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection intimacy and aligned growth all healthy relationships start within but when we have unresolved stuff it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available. To cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve to find out more visit joryrose.com retreats that's j-o-r-e-e-r-o-s-e.com retreats hey everybody this is dr john back with another episode of the evolved caveman podcast and i am really excited to have with me today bob falconer And Bob is an internal family systems therapy practitioner, teacher, and writer. He has devoted himself full-time to IFS work since training in IFS with Dick Schwartz more than a decade ago and assisting Dr. Schwartz in many trainings and workshops. During the early part of his career before discovering IFS, Bob worked with survivors of major trauma. His focus is now on the study and treatment of the others within us, also known as unattached burdens or UBs in IFS. His new book, The Others Within Us, Internal Family Systems, Porous Mind, and Spirit Possession, a work of more than 10 years of research, was published in April 2023. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Thank you for joining me.
1: I'm doing great. Great to be here.
0: And for the listeners, I had heard Bob on one of his interviews on IFS Talks, the podcast, and was just blown away by the ideas that he shared. So if you would tell me a little bit about your story and how did you get to this point in your life and talking and writing about unattached burdens?
1: Okay. I, I, my own background is extreme trauma, violent, sexual, physical abuse, brother of suicide, father murdered mom in and out of mental institutions. So that was the kind of clients I got, you know, (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously, and I spent a long, long time building up a worldview based on trauma-oriented psychotherapy. And, um, I'm going along with that in, in my early 60s, thinking I've basically got the got stuff figured out. That's that's a danger sign. When you uh, Yes. <laughs> it's nice to feel that for a while, but then you're like, uh, no, I don't. Well, I met this woman. I was doing a training for the IFS people, and I was supervising a group. And this guy was acting as a the therapist with this woman. And she had this thing in her which looked like an internal critic, except it was meaner than a junkyard dog. And it had nothing good. And I'd heard about these things. They call them unattached burdens, a name I hate. You know, Ah, I have. Ah, okay. But um, they used to call them critters. I like that name Mm. a lot better. (laughs) Because it's uh, friendlier, less. Yeah, it's friendlier and it's not so pompous. Um, and these things actually seem to have more like have an intention or an agency, whereas unattached burden sounds like a piece of iron or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but anyway, this guy was trying to work with her, not getting anywhere. I said, is it okay if I take over the session? And he said, please. And I started working with this thing that looked like a a, uh, a critic, but it had no good intention. It just wanted to destroy her. And that's the fr- Parts always have a good intention. Somewhere, And in IFS, we welcome suicidal parts, all these parts. We get to their good intention, then we can join them. And IFS is all about, we don't try and amputate anything. This thing had absolutely no good intention. When that got clear, and oh, it appeared as this woman looked into her inner world as a bloodshot eyeball. And then as she saw it in more detail, it also had legs. So this really bizarre thing is appearing inside her anyway no good intention i had her ask is it a part of you and it waffled and bullshitted a wreck i hope that's acceptable oh you can swear on
0: here that's <laughs> fine
1: please but yeah yeah it bullshit a lot and then finally it's it's oh at one point it said to me you're supposed to be a teacher that's a very stupid question don't you have anything smarter to ask and i said i laughed at them and I said. them well, it might be really stupid, but it's really simple. Are you a part of her? And then finally, it roared out of her. No, I'm not a part of her. I'm a much more glorious being, and I'm going to squash you like a worm the same way I'm going to squash her.
0: And so how was your um, level of fear at that point?
1: Zero. Interesting. Good for you. I was just, oh, this is interesting. I've heard about these things, and I knew basically nothing about them. But I was able to get it out of her system, just using very basic stuff. You're not part of her, you got to go. It stayed out. And I debriefed the group, you know, my little practice group in a professional way. Then I went back to the staff meeting and I started trembling. Mm-hmm. I was really cold and I couldn't get my temperature back, even with a blanket and people hugging me. And then my my peers started making fun of me, calling calling me Ghostbuster and And I got really irritable and pissed off and acted very badly. (laughs) And then that night I thought, I'm just gonna forget about this. This didn't happen, you know. But then this woman sent me these emails from from the airport going home from the training. At first she was saying stuff like, I've never seen colors like this in my whole life. It's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. And I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I triggered a manic episode. And then Mm -hmm. another email going, Oh, I can see the divine in people, Bob. This is so wonderful. And now I'm going. I've triggered uh-oh. A major manic. Yeah. Uh oh. Malpractice. So, you know all the. And then she sent me an email that changed my life. She said, "I didn't tell you this, but when I was a teenager, and when I worked with her, she was pushing fifty. When I was a teenager, I tried to kill myself many times, and I was institutionalized repeatedly. And she said, back then, when I tried to tell." anybody about the non-human inside of me, they gave me electroshock and injected me with terrible drugs. You're the first person to ever believe me and you have changed my life. And I went, I can't ignore this. It really sucks. (laughs) But I'm not going to ignore this now. You know, it's just what? (laughs) It doesn't fit anywhere. <laughs> you know, I spent decades building up this worldview, studied, wrote books, all that kind of stuff. Now, here's this thing from left field. What? And well, and oh,
0: so yeah, go ahead. I mean, one of the things so I did my PhD at UC Berkeley, and Berkeley drilled science and research into me. And so that was the paradigm through which I viewed the world for decades. And I love that paradigm. And as I've gotten older and perhaps wiser, I've realized that science is only one lens among many, and it can't explain everything. And also it's slow to catch up. And so in the past decade, I've looked more at spirituality and spiritual forms of healing. And I remember having, I used to do a radio show probably 18 years ago in the Bay Area. And I had a guy that came and he he sent me a book that was like two inches thick, volume one of three on one individual a case study and he was a pastoral counselor specializing in multiple personality or did Mm -hmm. um, resulting from ritualistic satanic abuse Mm -hmm. and the stuff he was saying and i actually had him come over for a couple dinners because it was fascinating to me but i couldn't fit it into my scientific paradigm it was just so out there and you know exorcisms and All this stuff that I just couldn't, like I wanted to believe him, but I couldn't really believe him. And the thing that thrilled me about your book and what you were speaking about is it's a bridge between psychology and spirituality that allows me to make more sense of some of these out there phenomenon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of William James, radical. Yeah. What helped the suffering human being in front of me? (laughs) And I try and stay away from all this fancy metaphysical stuff about what's going on. How can I reduce the suffering in front of me right now? I I love that. Yeah. Um, So radical pragmatism.
0: Yeah. Do me a favor. For those that don't know, would you briefly give the five-minute explanation of internal family systems?
1: Okay. Internal family systems is a parts work model. We are made up. We are not. We're much more like a uh, basketball team or soccer team than a tennis player. We have all sorts of different parts, and that's not a product of trauma. It's natural, it's how it should be. Uh, you know, if you look at a computer, there are all these subroutines. They're largely encapsulated modules that are sparsely interconnected. We're made like that too. And then Therapy becomes a matter of getting these modules, parts, sub-personalities, to cooperate as a team. We're not trying to blend them all together, and they're all welcome. There's also something in us that uh, in IFS they call a self, which is like the witness function, and getting that, getting the parts to separate back so that that can take the leadership of the person is sort of the healing model of IFS.
0: Yeah, that? Yeah, That's great. Thank you. And, you know, it it resonates with me with a poem that Emily Dickinson wrote back in the day. And I'm going to massacre this. I'll paraphrase it. But it's, there are fiefdoms in my head, and those fiefdoms are often at war with one another. And I think that accurately describes a lot of times what's going on in our minds. And, you know, almost like Inside Out, where you've got these different voices in your head that are different parts frozen in different ages. And I, I think it gives permission to talk about it to normalize it and to work with those parts
1: yeah yeah exactly and i work a lot overseas i've worked in china korea pakistan australia canada spain a bunch of other places it's the same everywhere this is not a cultural artifact is the result?
0: how are unattached burdens viewed by other cultures around the world because i imagine there's quite a range
1: okay Uh, uh, spirit possession is the number one metaphor And nobody wants to talk about that. Dick was really mad at me because I put that as part of the subtitle. And I just want to phrase it this way for the rationalists. There is a basic biopsychological dynamic that occurs in pretty much every culture we have records of. It's one of the most widespread things in anthropology. It occurs in every era of history we have records of. The metaphor used to describe this most often is spirit possession. Mm-hmm. But what, however we describe it, it's such a widespread phenomena, it's worthy of study. And it can destroy people's lives and transform their lives in it suddenly. No.
0: Well, do me a favor. Go to your idea about the porosity of the brain, the, the porousness of the brain, because I think
1: that's a helpful bridge to get there. Yeah. Every living system is surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane things that have uh oh, some something impervious around them are dead <laughs> you know it's just duh why would our brains be any different i mean come on gang and if you accept this basic idea that we are semi-permeable then stuff coming in that doesn't belong that might make us sick is, is just sort of makes sense You know, and I think, you know, Richard Dawkins is perhaps the most um, adamant new atheist on the planet today. (laughs) I mean, he's Mr. Rational Materialist. He came up with this whole theory of memes and memeplexes. He said there there are viruses of the mind which Mm. can get into your mind, replicate in there, and then be transferred out. And he said there are also memeplexes, whole conglomerations of ideas and attitudes that can get transmitted mind to mind, replicate inside your mind, and then be further contagious. This is, this, doesn't this sound like spirit possession from a rationalist point of view? Yeah. Stuff like this happens and we've ignored it because it's inconvenient. Mm-hmm. But it's so imp- it's killing some people like this woman and I've stayed in touch with her. It's more than a decade now. And she still says that was a life-changing event. And her life from all external measures has flowered since then.
0: When I've had personal experiences with clients getting into, well, speaking to parts like this, but until I heard your interview, I wasn't really sure how to proceed. So I was very grateful.
1: Yeah, I think the big mistake in... This is arrogant. Excuse me. <laughs> big mistake. Be All arrogant. Right, I was making a big mistake. <laughs> anyway, the thing that I do really differently, I don't fight them.
0: Mm-hmm. Tell they, us, I, speak to how you interact with them and ask them to leave.
1: Yeah. Basically, I work with the client and any parts of the client who are attached to them. Rather than that, and then when when the client is a hundred percent ready, all their parts are ready to let it go. I just tell the thing: we don't want to punish you or judge you. You're in the wrong place. You're lost. You yourself are a suffering being. We want to help you go where you can transform. They usually start swearing and say, "I'm not going anywhere." Blah, blah, blah. But I just treat them with kindness and compassion. Yeah, you know the Brazilian Spiritists have studied this. They they might be leading the planet in terms of working with these kind of energies. They have over fifty psychiatric hospitals that are that are based on spiritist uh, ideas. But anyway, they think all these things are the lost souls of other of dead people, and that they need our help as much as our own clients do. I don't know. Yeah, it, yeah.
0: It, it's fascinating to me because I've, you know, my I'm I'm tending to get more into using psychedelics to heal clients. And to me, that's another bridge between psychology and spirituality. And in talking with spiritual healers who have done this work for decades, what you're talking about is assumed as real because they've seen it multiple times, (laughs) many times. And so it's something it's fascinating to me because I think we've got all these clinical trials around the country going on with psilocybin and MDMA and other substances. And I think the vast majority of these psychologists and researchers are coming at it from a purely scientific perspective, And I think they're missing out on a big spiritual piece that could, and you know again, infrequently put people at danger at risk because yeah. I, I think when you're in a psychedelic state, your defenses are lowered. You could say, you know it disarms the parts or the protectors of the parts, and you're more susceptible to
1: dark energy like this. Yeah, good again. I want to say uh, Roland Griffiths, the psychedelic researcher at Johns Hopkins, is one of my intellectual heroes. And he mm. is very much a hard science guy. I mean, he's got the statistics out the wazoo and very carefully controlled stuff. He did two, I think it's two major studies of in DMT. People who take DMT at the doses he was using, about 50% of them meet Conscious, intelligent beings they have relationships with. And this was very distressing to a lot of his researchers. You know, they were ready for Zen enlightenment or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> relationships with some being without a body that was not expected. But so it shows up a lot in psychedelics. And, and I it, thought there was another study that showed that 90% of those journeys. Yes. Yeah, that was a guy had who had some sort of a process.
0: And and I'm not naive enough to think that all of those energies or, or guides are benevolent in nature.
1: Yeah. I think the majority are. If I think so. Look, if you look at the history around the world, most of it is people seeking out contact with, with intelligences greater mm-hmm. than our own. There's just tons of that in every religious tradition.
0: But I, I think, you know, even if it's one out of a hundred that aren't benevolent. To me, I want to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think
1: it's way more than that. But yeah, well, I, what would you say? I have 10 no, out of 100? Well, you're going to hear this a lot if you keep talking to me. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. Okay. I have, I have, I have gotten some ideas about how okay. to help someone who has this kind of issue in front of me, and I've. It to me, it's almost an ethical issue. Somebody comes to me. There's an implicit contract. I'm supposed to help them relieve their suffering. I am not supposed to use them as an unwilling research tool to learn more about this stuff. Mm. And I am so curious that it actually is a, is an act of discipline for me not to, not to Mm. do that stuff at somebody's expense. Yeah. The curiosity that I have is overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And one thing that happened, which was sort of nice, None of the other IFS therapists wanted to touch this stuff. It's weird. It's scary. It's, you know, and it's. It could be career uh, threatening. It, oh, it is definitely. Because I've, I've gotten a lot of gas because I do what I do. But I'm yeah. 75. I don't really give a damn anymore. I like that about you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I like the saying that what other people think about us is none of our damn business.
1: Yeah, that's, it's a lot easier when I don't need to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel you. Yeah. Um, what was it? it? was some point I was going to make there. Oh, I get all these referrals. The other therapists don't want to deal this. So, yeah. oh, Bob, he'll do that, which has really been so helpful in doing the research and getting the book together.
0: It, it's interesting. I was talking to a spiritual healer just yesterday, and she was telling me about, uh, an instance that she had on an LSD trip where she was helping someone get rid of what you would call an unattached burden, which she would call something else. Um, but it was interesting because it kind of mapped directly onto what you were saying on the IFS Talks podcast, which was, you know, just chant or repeat to yourself, there's nothing but love and light within me. There is no room around me for anything but love and light. We wish you well, We we send you on your way and just repeat that over and over and over. Um, And so I was like, wow, that's quite similar to what Bob was
1: saying. (laughs) Yeah, really similar. I wanna say something else. I don't ever impose my language on a client. I think it is so important to learn your client's language and everyone lives inside a story, a mythology, and we should have the basic fundamental human respect of learning, the other person's mythology, their metaphors. And there's a great story about Milton Erickson that I think really brings this home. The greatest hypnotherapist ever, I think, psychiatrist. He worked in a locked ward for psychotics for many years in the Midwest. And there was a guy who just talked word salad. You know, Mm -hmm. stuff that sounds like language but doesn't mean anything. For years and years, they'd put him in the hall and he'd just stand there and do this all day Completely in his own little world. So Dr. Erickson goes and starts studying the man's word salad and actually transcribes a bunch of it so he can learn like the syntax and some of the words and artwork. And then he goes and stands next to the guy and talks word salad back to him for a while. After only two or three days of doing this in the middle of the word salad, the guy turns to him and says, Cut it out, doc. And then <laughs> right back in his word salad. But just by learning the man's language he broke this wall of isolation that had kept mm-hmm. this guy absolutely separated for years and years and years so learn the other person's language yeah no i'm, talk I'm with talking of islamic people and you know they talk about jim i talk about jim <laughs> yeah <laughs> and with this um, i'll talk about meme plexus
0: so what do you think leads some people to be more vulnerable to unattached
1: burdens okay um anytime you're really out of your body trauma uh lets them in often rape and sexual abuse almost literally injects them into people well wow. another thing that was unexpected to me childhood surgeries Huh? if you think of the anesthesia you're out of your body yeah Dissociative, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anything anything like that, any experience, and I think everybody, I get them in me sometimes, but I'm not scared of them anymore, so it's no big deal. But I think the most important rule, these things only get power by scaring you. And when you're not scared of them anymore, they lose all power. Hmm. So the way to deal with them is find all the parts of you who are scared of them and welcome those parts in with love. Hmm. And when they can attach to your core with love, th- that other thing just falls away. That's why we don't have to fight them and battle them and, you know, yeah. come at them with the Bible and yeah,
0: not demand the demon's name and say, you know, yeah yeah, yeah be gone.
1: Um, what about intense negative emotions such as shame? They can, yeah, they can be involved in this a lot, a lot. Addictions, they're often involved. And oh, that makes sense. There's, uh, several people have investigated this with the voices psychotics here. Uh, explain that. Um, there's one guy, Jerry Marzinski, who's, he he would interview the voices that psychotics heard. Oh, okay. And some of them seemed to be these things that weren't part of them at all. And he would start sending them on. And he worked in just a regular locked ward for psychotics. And his boss found out what he was doing. And he said, you got to stop that. We can't have that. I don't care what results you're getting. Typical. So Jerry quit. And he went and worked in a a prison for the criminally insane. And he said, I could do anything in here. They didn't care what the hell happened to those people. Hmm. <laughs> so he worked he, that's where he worked for many years and, and with, he had some uh, success with that yeah yeah and he he wrote a fascinating little book about it and there was um, another guy before him wilson van dusen who did the same sort of stuff yeah one of the um
0: i think you're right that trauma sexual assault rape those are are big predictors of of this possibility um One of the spiritual healers i was talking to said that the best way to not have any unattached burdens is to do your work yeah and i thought well that's yeah that makes a lot of sense that you know if you deal with your shame if you deal with your trauma if you deal with i don't know your guilt and anger and Mm -hmm. fear that you're much less likely to be a victim of one of these unattached burdens i'm not sure about the terminology here but
1: yeah An Unwilling host, maybe?
0: Yeah, unwilling host. Um, So can you give me a couple more examples of working with some individual cases and the languaging that you've used?
1: Okay, let me think of one. Okay, um, it was actually a very prominent IFS therapist brought her husband, and the two of them were there together, and the... The husband said he'd heard a voice years ago that said, I want you to die, I want you to die, I want you to die. And his wife, doing the classical IFS thing said, oh, that's a part. It's Mm -hmm. probably, and in IFS, most of the suicidal parts are just, we're the last line of defense. If the suffering's unbearable, we can help. This thing was not on it. And the guy said, I quit telling my wife because she just didn't get it. So we go in there and we're looking for this voice that is not trying to protect him in any way and it just wants him to die. And the guy had been a heroin addict and an alcoholic and a sex addict. So he had a major addiction history, but he'd been clean and sober for 20 years or a long time. So we go in there and he sees this thing inside him. and But it's still, there's still, it's. Gom together with a couple of his own parts, and he said it looked like three candles of different colors that were sort of all melted together. Hmm. And we were able to get one of those candles, one of his own parts, back to him, connected in a loving way. The other one was still stuck, and he said it looks like a battlefield all around them. and then as as they those two were able to separate some, and he said the the party him out there says, But what I see now is the most beautiful, sexy woman I have ever seen beckoning me to come towards Mm -hmm. her. And we both know if I go towards her, she will claw my guts out as we start to make love. Wow. But it was so sexy, he was still attracted. And then the thing shape shifted Mm -hmm. into the image of a tied off arm with bulging veins and a a Uh hypodermic full of heroin over it. So there were all these images. And finally, that part of him took off its uniform, threw it down, put on the man's uniform, and went back to him. And then we could just send this thing off. It didn't have anything left to hook on to. And when those parts let go of it, these things can't stay. You know the, the, How do you separate the part from the, U, the unattached burden? That was the process. Why was it attached? What, what was the UB offering it? And I keep asking the guy, how do you feel towards this part? And he says, oh, I feel sympathy. Boy, is that thing being torn apart. And then I ask the part, can you feel that man's sympathy coming towards you? And yeah, that feels pretty good. Could you take in a little more sympathy? And the more the sympathy and connection he could make with the guy, the more this other stuff didn't feel so good. And I think I'm really confident that if I just stay with it, the the good the the person will always win because the person's loving energy with their parts makes the parts stronger, and this these unattached burdens are always parasites, and at the end of the day they're draining that part, and the parts are not stupid. <laughs> you know? If you just stay at it patiently and lovingly, they'll get that. Hey, this one feels good, and this one makes me feel bad. Hmm. A lot of times the uh, reason people connect to these kind of energies is that they sort of feel like cocaine or speed. They promise power, power to the powerless. That's the number Mm -hmm. one, but they actually keep the, the part and the person powerless. So, you know, so that they can, they have to stay dependent on this thing.
0: So go into a little bit more about how you differentiate between a part and one of these unattached burdens, because I think prior, you said in another interview, you said that you always assume that a part is a part until you know otherwise.
1: Yep, super important. The two most important things about this stuff are if you're not afraid of it, it loses all power and assume it's a part, assume it's a part, assume it's a part. You know, in med school, they often tell the interns. when you hear hoofbeats, do not think of zebras. <laughs> it's, it's just like that here. A part always has a good intention. Even these like vicious critics and suicidal... So you just keep asking, well, what's good about that? Why do you want to kill? What's good about killing her? Then she wouldn't be on the planet anymore. Well, what would be good about her not being on the planet anymore? And then it would say, because then she wouldn't be suffering. That's a part. Mm-hmm. And if it says, oh, that means I win, <laughs> that's probably a UB. It's a different, different energy. So, and just lean way over into that, it's a part. And just keep looking and looking and looking for good intention. And then the next thing is to just ask it directly. And you have to make sure you're asking it, not some other part. Are, you know, are you a part of this person? And this is the one thing they don't seem to be able to lie directly about. Dick says they can never lie about this, but I was giving a lecture and saying that, and this huge, powerful, wonderful woman from Nigeria yelled, they lie. (laughs) And when I got over my shock, (laughs) I, I thanked her and she told me that in Nigeria, she said, oh, we know about this stuff. She said, we believe they lie about everything. And we also believe that some of them have been around so long they've forgotten who they really are. Wow. So it, most of the time they can't lie about that question, but I don't want to make any. They never lie.
0: Yeah. yeah. So they, hard to make some generalizations here or absolutes Yeah. in yeah. this realm. So are there other ways that you can send a UB on
1: its merry way? Well, actually, I've come to think (laughs) that UBs are actually like the ants in your kitchen. You know, they're not Mm. trying to help you out, right? The ants are not trying to do you any good. But they can't help but show you where you spilled the food. They're, They're really good at that. They're better than we are at that. So what the UBs do is they show us where really hurt, really hidden parts are. Parts who really need our love and reconnection so that I've I've just gone slower actually by going slower. I'm going faster. Mm-hmm. I, I look for all those wounded little parts who let that you be attached and just patiently and lovingly help the person reconnect with those exiled parts. And m- very often they're terrified little kid parts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and yeah. so.
0: So how many of these UBs have you dealt with in your career?
1: 500. Wow.
0: Something like that. And you said you've had some in yourself as well.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. And most, how did... The most dramatic how, one was I have I have a lot of different eye problems. Central... It doesn't matter. But I you would, and me both. <laughs> central serous retinopathy, wet macular degeneration, dry macular degeneration, a couple other things. And I was very bad at one time, and we went, I was actually working with Dick Schwartz himself, went inside, what we saw in my inner world, my imaginal realm, in my eye was a creature that looked like a spider with the tail of a scorpion, and it was poking at my, at at the retina. And that, you know, wet macular degeneration, these blisters form and then they start bleeding and that's what makes you blind. So it's poking was causing the blistering. And we got this thing out and sent it away and I'm doing way better than the doctors ever thought possible. Wow. And I'm still, I get the injections into my eyeball when I need them and I, you know, do all the Western medical stuff. But that was a very dramatic, uh, to me, to me, it was really dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: well, let's talk a bit about injections into eyeballs. Cause I got five of them recently and that was kind of traumatic. I got to say, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was kind of like worst nightmare kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really bad, but it's better than going blind.
0: Yeah. True. I just had 10 retinal tears recently, but I've had four surgeries on two eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: not not fun.
0: Yeah. And
1: scary when you
0: think you're losing your sense of sight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, they told me a long time ago, you're going blind. You should get ready, you know. But I'm not. I can see. I can read. I can drive. You know. All right. Good
0: for you. Well, well I wish you the best with those eye issues.
1: Yeah, and I need way, you know, they, they're they continually surprised that I go in there and I don't need a shot when they think I should need a shot. And So, and there have been other, you know, other cases where they're involved in disease and that kind of malfunction. So do the blisters bleed and then the blood gets, it's in
0: your eye and then it clouds the vision?
1: Well, the blisters themselves, it's like, you know, the back is... The blister would be like one of those fun house mirrors, mm. you know, where once it blisters, everything's distorted, distorted and yeah, and almost unreadable. And then if it starts bleeding, that's when you're really going to lose all, because then more blood vessels start growing into the thing and it'll never go back down. And Because I, I had that experience
0: recently where I had laser surgery to fix the 10 retinal tears. And a couple weeks later, one of them tore and started bleeding and I couldn't see anything out of that eye. But the cleared itself up after a few weeks.
1: Yeah, sometimes they do, but the the wet macular degenerations allegedly won't, huh. but they are for me. So I'm not, yeah. Well, let me change
0: subject slightly here because I'm curious how you look at self at this point. And, you know, Dick Schwartz has said that self is both simultaneously a particle and a wave in quantum physics terms. And in other words, the self kind of simultaneously extends beyond self to others as well as in con- as it's contained within the mind
1: and the body. And also each one of those little parts of us, they all have a self too. And each one of those parts is made up of other parts and self just like we are. So it's sort of like this fractal thing going down and down and down and going up in the other direction. I like to think of it in terms of self is both Uh, like a a particle, something we can find in ourselves, and a field, you know, and I think that's the language Dick is using these days more. And that Mm -hmm. when we join that one field, who was it? Schopenhauer says there's only only one eye of the universe, and it's the one that looks out through all of our eyes and all of the animal's eyes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's this sort of model of self as a field. The thing I really like about this idea, because most of the people I worked with were severely traumatized, like me, and I and all the other people I worked with were told, you're damaged goods, take a lot of meds, expect a miserable little life, sorry that happened to you. That was basically therapy's best answer for a long time. Yeah. And Dick comes along and he says, this self is within you, no matter how bad the storm down in here." self cannot be damaged, it can't even be dirtied. When the storm clouds part, that sun is still there, radiant, vast, luminous, untouched, that sun is who you really are. That's an incredible message for people with huge trauma histories. Yeah. And I think it's true. Yeah,
0: and I got to say thank you for all your work with severe trauma, because that is intense work and draining work and demanding work. Yeah, it is. So how long have you been doing this work?
1: Uh, You mean been involved in the therapy world in any way? Yeah. Oh, God. I started, I I didn't get uh, my master's degree until I think the early 80s, but I started going down to Esalen and doing a lot of stuff there Mm -hmm. in 1971. Okay I first got involved with psychedelics and psychedelic healing in nineteen sixty seven okay so I've been at this a while gotcha
0: <laughs> and and what's your view on psychedelics in terms of therapeutic healing?
1: I think they're incredibly important and valuable, and I'm really afraid they're going to be misused and I, in what sense um, i I do work some with indigenous people and they're really pissed off that psychedelics are being medicalized. Mm-hmm. They say this is spiritual and it should be kept spiritual. And framing it in terms of pathology and, and medical answers is, is a horrible mistake. And even Dr. Griffiths, you know, the head of this hyper-scientific program at, at John Hopkins, you know, he's dying now, sadly. He has stage four uh, colon cancer. His, his, his dying wish was that people contribute to fund uh, a, a professorship on spirituality and psychedelics. He's awesome. saying these are fundamentally a spirituality, spiritual healing, and we need to recognize that and study that in a responsible way. So uh, that's the direction I think we need to go. I also think there are an incredible number of irresponsible providers who know next to nothing. And... Um, I'm, I'm really concerned because there are these official therapy land things that cost a fortune and very few people can go to them. I think for every one of those, quote, official psychedelic sessions, there are at least 100 underground sessions. Mm-hmm. And all the money and stuff is going into training the people to do the official therapy land sessions. There's something wrong with this picture. Yeah. So one of the other things I do is I try and do relatively short trainings for underground providers, mostly in terms of sort of a harm reduction,
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of, you know, just like five, six sessions. And so and I think that's really important.
0: Yeah. So thank you for your work there as well. Um, because I agree. I, I think that the psychedelics offer a powerful new tool to open up doors into altered states of consciousness, which can lead to incredible healing. Um, and I, I, I see it as, as much a foray into mental health and mental wellness, wellness as, you know, dealing with severe depression or other Mm -hmm. pathologies. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You know, I I have seen tremendous growth from like treatment resistant depression clients that I have, and it's been almost remarkable
1: yeah incredible incredible sorry you were gonna say oh no there's so much to say um one of the things uh roland griffiths did was he thought that it was the mystical experience induced by psilocybin that causes the incredible Good results mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So what he did, as scientist that he is, is he operationalized the definition of mysticism. He divided it up into six categories, three uh-huh. major, three minor, and you could score each one. So he now has a mathematical way of scoring mystical experiences. Well, my understanding is the
0: higher you score on that, I think it's a mystical experiences questionnaire, Yeah, the better the outcome is yep, yep. as a result of the journey.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the point. Yeah. So it
0: it opens you up to thinking bigger than self. It opens you up to thinking spiritually or understanding the meaning or the interconnectedness of all things or your connection with nature or your connection with a higher power. And the more, the higher you score on these items, the better off you are, which is fascinating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it fits very well with Robin Carhart-Harris, who's now at UCSF and used to be at Imperial College London. He came up with this metaphor, he said, before a psychedelic session, it's like a ski slope where everyone's going down the same trail. And that's basically the only trail you can go down. It's so deeply grooved. Psychedelic sessions like a big new snowfall. And you, you have this huge, beautiful, new, all these pathways are open. And then, so you can, it it frees you to operate in many new and different ways. And the guys at the Harvard Psychedelic Research Project uh, talk about rumination, you know, repetitive thought loops. And they think that's at the root of many, many really serious uh, psychological problems. And they think psychedelics interrupt rumination and allow new new pathways to form. So they're all, I think they're all sort of, There's a convergence.
0: Yeah. And I think psilocybin in particular has been shown to interrupt those habitual, old, negative ways of thinking or ruminating um, that I think is really exciting.
1: Yeah. One of the things that happens in the underground that has not gotten through to the professional world is a typical pattern, at least among the ones I've dealt with in Northern California. They start people with MDMA. They even call it book one in the underground slang. Mm-hmm. And then they slowly add, and they call psilocybin book two.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they 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 have a pretty high dose of MDMA. And then they start tapering that down and they give people a little psilocybin and less MDMA. So they're giving them both. In the different, journeys. Yeah, different journeys. Yeah, in different journeys. Until at the end, they're giving them either all psilocybin or mostly psilocybin and a very small dose of MDMA. Yeah. So I think this combination of psychedelics is very powerful and wonderful. And, you know, it's it's been 23, 24 years they're trying to get approval for MDMA by itself. 37.
0: 37 37 (laughs) years and my understanding is it's going to be approved legally next year 2024 for therapeutic purposes and my hope is that psilocybin will be legalized for therapeutic use in 2025.
1: Uh, Still that's you know when are they when are they going to approve combining them or all these they're all I don't know
0: because I'm with you in that in my own personal experience and working with clients that the MDMA plus the psilocybin it seems to be the recipe
1: yeah. And there are other things like there's a, there's a, one of, there are all these designer drugs they're creating that, yeah. There's one called 3MMC, which was designed to be a replacement for MDMA with, with less of this, less of the negative side effects.
0: And yeah. MDMA has that depletive effect on us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, Nobody's going to put millions of dollars in 20 years, you know, for some drug that can't be patented. Yeah. So it's like, hmm, there's there's some big problems in that field. So where do you see this psychedelic-assisted therapy headed? I'll tell you my dream. (laughs) I'd love to hear it. (laughs) Uh, um, Have you heard of the Religious Freedom Act?
0: I'm not familiar with it
1: it's uh, it's an act of uh, congress federal federal government and it's why the native american church can use peyote oh, and the May okay. church can use ayahuasca and there church of ethnogenic nice,
0: healing yeah
1: well though the, the others are still questionable but one guy founded his own church it went all the way and they busted him and it went all the way to the supreme court and they found against the guy But they said, you're not a real religion because real religions have A, B, C, D, E, and F. So they've laid out a fairly precise recipe for what you need to do to be a real religion. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we need to do is get some very high-level people to organize a new religion based on psychedelic healing. Because then you won't have all these other... Unbelievably stupid and cumbersome uh, impediments. Mm-hmm. You know, peyote and ayahuasca in those, in the Daime church and the Native American church, never went through all that garbage. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope somebody uh, at a high level will do.
0: I think that sounds wonderful. I, I just think that the potential for healing is highly significant.
1: And so we need more avenues to access safely. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. And I was busted a couple times for psychedelics. I I got off both times, but so I paid some dues on this. Oh, I knew I loved you for some reason.
0: (laughs) So let me ask you this. We only got about five minutes left. Can you tell me one more unattached burden story?
1: Okay. I want to tell you a slightly different story. Okay. This one is from the anthropologist Tanya Gorman, who I think is one of the most brilliant humans today. Not the, I've never met her, so it's not personal. I just know her through her writings. More she's in Robert Sapolsky? <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. That's she's, also, she's also at Stanford.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. I won't hold that against her.
1: Yeah. Um, she studies spirituality and psychosis worldwide. Hmm. And this is an older study of hers, there are more recent ones. She studied psychosis in San Mateo, California, Accra, Ghana, and Chennai, India. Now, we spend way more than 100 times more than either of those other two places do on the care and treatment of psychotics. Guess who gets the worst results? Us. You're right. Yeah, bingo. (laughs) And she thinks the reason why is because we have what she calls the citadel theory of mind. Mm -hmm. mind? Yeah, we've come to believe that our minds are inside this fortress and everything inside our mind is ours. It's our private property and it constitutes our identity. And we're about the only culture in the history of humanity to have this bizarre idea. And it's very, very poisonous it looks strong, right, and like a fortress, but it's actually incredibly brittle because you hear one voice that doesn't seem like you, and you go, oh, my God, I'm shattered. Mm-hmm. I'm destroyed. I'm and crazy. the doctors are going to tell you, oh, you, yeah, you are. You got a broken brain. You need to be on these horrible meds for the rest of your life. In Accra, Ghana, they have what she called a cosmocentric conception of self where the self was seen as being part of the cosmos and they expected there to be communication back and forth between the you know the the deities and the spirits and the rivers and so it's not a disaster when they experience something new coming in the, and in india she said well they have a more sociocentric view of the self where you know they hear a voice and oh that's like my aunt who always used to nag me you know, it's it's not, I mean, they still have florid psychotic episodes and need care and protection. But our con- conception that we're this self that's got this, you know, rigid thing around it is a disaster. And I think there are a lot of people, this is something I want to maybe do another book on. I think this rigid conception of ourselves underlies most or many of our modern social ills.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things that psychedelics is so powerful in breaking the illusion of, right? That we're not separate, that we are all interconnected, that this idea of self that we have is fundamentally incorrect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Gregory Bateson said it, what, 50 years ago now, he said in his one book, Mind and Nature, he said, mind and nature evolve together. To try and analyze one without considering the other is absolutely useless and will never work (laughs) it's it's the relationship it's the relationship no
0: so well bob i i can't say how much i appreciate your time and the wisdom you've shared with us um where can people get a hold of you if they would like to find out more and repeat the name of the book if you would
1: okay robert falconer.us is my website and i've got some wonderful person uh who puts that together for me uh and i she tells me i have a youtube channel too which <laughs> I've, never, I've never looked at but i guess it's there um and the book is the others within us Excellent. and it's available on amazon
0: Well, thank you so much. And that is it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. If you like this episode, please feel free to like, rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. Until next time. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues.
0: For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The
1: Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com.